The Incomparable, number 267, October 2015. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell. We are uh, reconvening our book club. This episode, we're going to be talking about uh, two books, one by Paolo Bacigalupi. It's called The Water Knife, and another by Neil Stevenson, which is called Seven Eves. These are authors we've talked about before in previous episodes. You could look it up or in the show notes, perhaps, if I'm not too lazy. Um, to talk about these two novels uh, of the of a science fictional nature, uh, I have uh, four human beings uh, who are not robots that we know of. <laughs> Lisa Schmeiser, not a robot. Hi, Lisa. Hi, how are you? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. David J. Lore, probably not a mandroid. Possibly. Possibly. That's right. Possibly. Uh, Serenity Caldwell, good to, good to hear your voice, your human voice. Yes, I am not a robot for mm, this podcast. I don't believe you. <laughs> and uh, the, the most of all of the creatures I've met in my travels, his is the most human. It is Scott McNulty. <laughs> Hello. Hello. I got your Star Trek reference in there. I hope you're I, I happy. I appreciate that. Yes. I was going to do the robot voice, but then rendered it, and I was like, well, I don't need to do it. Nope. <laughs> so, being last. Both of these books are about robots. Nope. They're not at all. Not even a little. Uh, no, no, not so even. A, there are a lot of robots in there, 70s. Well, there, there are many. Yes. Robot or, or not. I mean, they're, not, they're not like sentient they're not, things. Yeah, but they're not. Oh, we yeah. Androids. We need to get John Syracuse John Syracuse would probably say that they're not robots. <laughs> that is a different podcast. All right. We should start with... Uh, the water knife, I think. I would like yes. to start there. And then and then we will, whatever time we have left, will be devoted to the 80,000 pages of the latest Neil Stevenson novel. <laughs> There's a certain irony which is, in that. Mm-hmm. Which is yeah. the first third, right? So, yeah. so mm-hmm. The Water Knife is a uh, is a shorter book than Seven Eves. <laughs> I'm told that the hardcover is about 370 pages long. I read yeah. it on the Kindle. Um, Paul Bacigalupi, we've talked about him before. He wrote The Wind-Up Girl, which I thought was really excellent. He wrote uh, a couple of really good, albeit depressing, YA novels that we talked about. Um, Scott and Ren, I think maybe we talked about the, those. Um, we did to, ages to, ago together on an yes. episode. Mm-hmm. I know I had I had to miss that episode because I was traveling. I was so bummed. Oh, yeah, so Shipbreaker and the Drowned Cities. Both I, yeah. I I really highly recommend Shipbreaker and and uh, Drowned Cities is just more depressing, but also good, just depressing. But also very good. So yeah. so um, as somebody who's a resident of California, I can tell you, especially the Water Knife por- portrays a uh, a future in which the uh, desert Southwest of the United States is uh, horribly short on water. Water has become incredibly valuable, and essentially the U.S. government has abdicated a lot of their responsibility over the border disputes between the various uh, powers in the region. Um, there is a, there, there, you know, there still is a U.S. government and all of that, but they're kind of not going to get involved in Nevada and California and Arizona and, and other parts of uh, the Southwest squabbling over who gets the water rights and who has water and who is going what, and what cities are going to essentially shut down and crumble into dust because they don't have enough water. And that is the that is the uh, the backdrop for the water knife. Paolo Bacigalupi is notable for writing about um, about eco- ecology and uh, atmospheric stuff and, and climate change and stuff like that. It's a, a, a the the um, what is it? The, the wind up girl takes place in a in a mostly uh, drowned Southeast Asia with some dikes and stuff, and uh, it's a similar kind of uh, situation in the uh, in those two YA 
books set in a in a kind of a post sea level rise dystopia. This is a different world. Um, it's not about uh, sea level rise here, but it is still about climate change. I've heard people refer to this as cli-fi, which I do not like oh, and do not approve. No. Let's, no, let's no. never say that again. Yes. I, I just I'm putting it out there, and then we're going to beat it to death, and it, it will never escape. So and, and uh, so set on this backdrop is a story about uh, a guy who is uh, working for the head of the water agency in Las Vegas. He is the titular water knife. He's basically a thug an assassin in the employ of the water agency. And then there's also a plucky reporter named <laughs> Lucy Monroe, who, uh, it, who has sort of accidentally found herself in Phoenix as it's in its death throes. And, uh, and then they, uh, they, they meet along with a, a, a refugee from Texas because Texas has basically fallen entirely apart. Uh, Maria and the, and they fight crime. Nope, that doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> but this is uh this is, this is your story. It is, the water knife uh it's all about uh terrible things that happen in phoenix arizona as it's basically falling apart because it has no water that's my summary of the water knife what do people think of this one lisa you're a resident of california yeah i I don't know if this happened for anybody else but the first time you got up to wash your hands or get a drink of water while reading or after reading this book did you think to yourself my god what a miracle that we can just turn on the tap and water comes out i should put a bowl under the under my while i wash my hands and then use that to water this plant which is what we do actually being a, a fellow californian um we all again as jason has said we're both in california it's suffering a huge you know once in 500 every year's type of drought. And so in my house, we already do do the thing where we reuse every bit of water we have. And, and I've got a gray water system now for watering the plants, blah, blah, blah. But when I, when I read this, I kept thinking, wow, we should send copies of this to, uh, you know, people and people in water utilities and policymakers. Cause one of the things that I thought, one of the things I thought was phenomenal, cause I read this back to back with seven eaves and there's a part in Seven Eves where the Neil deGrasse Tyson character, who we'll get to later, <laughs> yeah. is all, well, you know, one thing is a tragedy, but when an entire planet goes kablooey, you just, you can't, you can't get, a, you're, you can't wrap your brain on the scope. And um, in this case, like the, the genius of the water knife is the close look, because you do have Maria, who's this teenage refugee from California, excuse me, from Texas, who over the course of the entire novel... Um, she typifies what happens to people who become refugees and are and, and and are driven to rely on themselves far before they have to. And um what I really loved about the book was the way it shows um how Lucy gets too close to the story and in doing so becomes utterly unable to understand and see what would drive somebody like Maria, because they have a, a climactic um confrontation at the very end. I loved Angel's quasi-redemption arc. And the reason I say it's a quasi-redemption arc is because he's going to hop in a, a helicopter and go back to Catherine Case, who's the the head of water the water manager. agency yeah. in Las Vegas. Yeah. She's the queen I mean, of the, the queen of Las Vegas, essentially. Yeah, I mean, she was briefly trying to kill him when she thought he was betraying her. Mm. But like now that they've worked out that understanding, he's going to he's going to toss Maria in this helicopter. And the last thing he says to her in the book is, "Catherine Case is going to love you." And I felt like that book was saying right there, "Okay, she's going to be a water knife, and she's mm. going to be great at it because she's looking at the world in a way." that almost nobody else can. She doesn't remember a pre-shortage time. And that kind of reminds me of um, Emily St. John Mandel's Station Eleven when they're talking about the before and the after. And one of the observations that one of the characters makes is, if you were a child, you really don't remember what 
if you were a child when the world, you know, depopulated, you really don't remember electricity or medicine or anything like that. So you don't miss it too much. And in Maria's case, and she's very young, she really doesn't remember life before. Like she has these vague impressions of all the stuff that she no longer has. But she's like, no, this is the world. And she talks a lot about old eyes, looking at the world in old eyes, where this is the way the world used to be. And we can get back to it versus looking at the world as it is now. And what I thought was the same thing. Um, I thought at the end of the Drowned Cities, which was, you know, the Drowned Cities explained how people become child soldiers, in effect. These are the circumstances that lead to it. This is what happens. This is the human cost of the way the world is today. And, you know, this book is the same thing, whether Water Knife is saying this is the this is the human cost of the kind of consumption patterns we have going on. This is what we're, are you guys willing to pay this? So I thought it was an intensely moral, intensely gripping read. I highlighted a boatload of passages because he's got a vivid and economical way of describing the complete collapse of civilization. Um, no, one of my favorite one of my favorite um, phrases was the odd mix of broken souls, bleeding hearts, and predators who occupied the shattered places of the world. And that that one sentence is just so elegant and so economical, and says so much. And it's just the prose in this book is excellent in addition to the story. And I really love and appreciate when you can find something where the story and the method of delivery are both beautiful. I'm going to go next to uh, a native, a native Californian, I believe. Uh, uh, Serenity, what did you think of this one? Gosh, uh, this book made me think a lot. <laughs> I, in, well, it's funny because this book came at a time where uh, I was talking uh, with my boyfriend at the time. We were like, well, do we, do we want to live in the Northeast forever? Um, and maybe I want to move cl- back closer to my parents. And we were talking like maybe Austin. And yeah. then reading this, I'm like, mm. <laughs> I mean, yes, work of fiction. But there's definitely there is a lot in this book to make you think because it's not it's not necessarily yes this is happening tomorrow but it's definitely this is a version of a future that could potentially happen and yes water rights are a thing which is something that I didn't actually realize until after the book I went kind of digging being like is this actually yeah um so it's just the book for me again I I I love all of um how do you say that, his last name? Bacigalupi. Bacigalupi. I love all of Paolo Bacigalupi's stuff. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you must not have read The Doubt Factory then. Ha <laughs> ha! Oh, you know, sorry. Oh, yeah. All right. So the, doubt, the doubt Factory. The Doubt Factory was clearly churned out quickly, and it's not a bad book, but. I, I, I feel like somebody whispered in his ear, this sort of book could sell well. But yeah. We're not going to talk yeah. about that. I want to keep no. it positive. I we'll, like we'll everything else he's done. Yes. I. All right. So, I, yeah, I love I love his climate change related science fiction. And I'm going to use the long version of that because the short acronym is terrible. Um, <laughs> I I agree with Lisa in that I, I, his prose is chilling. But, you know, in a way that it doesn't make you feel completely discouraged about the, the fate of the world or the potential fate of the world. But it definitely it gets in your brain and you think about these things long after you've closed the book. I mean, I read that book. I read it. It's a page turner. You know, I, I probably mm-hmm. read it straight through in 48 hours, maybe less. Um, but it but the certain phrases and imagery stuck with me a long time after the the hyenas the oh. yeah oh my gosh yeah the, so the all of the all of the game it's just it's such a well it's such a well built version of an apocalypse <laughs> because it doesn't because it's mm-hmm. so close to our reality that it doesn't feel so 
removed that we can't identify with it. And so you can it's 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 just it's like turning the knob just one setting over. So you look at everything and you're like, yeah, I recognize I recognize this, but without necessarily being too close to home or too far away from home that you become desensitized. Uh, there's a, I don't know. It's a, it's a very special balance that he's, that he's kind of struck. And I, I really enjoy, you know, the, the, uh, plot aside, I, I love the world building. I love the stuff we get about the ecologies and the, the essentially the living buildings, um, and how those sort of come into play in the story. Anybody um, who's played SimCity will recognize arcologies from if you if in SimCity 2000 if you build if you uh, last long enough they launch into space at the end. Yep. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was something that was that started percolating through architecture movements back in the 60s and mm-hmm. 70s. Self-contained yeah, structures our, our, and yeah. There's actually a structure yeah. in the southwest called Arcosante which was meant to be a self-contained um ecosystem the idea was that good architecture combined with ecology could create these oases in the desert and arcasante is an experiment that's been going on in the southwest for some time uh david you live near a river uh but i'm gonna ask (laughs) you what are your thoughts about the water knife Mm -hmm. well i was gonna say all of the you know uh thinking about the water being a miracle as it comes out of these little faucets all over my house i i thought of that the last time i went to california and went oh oh this is what it's like out here Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and I've I've been much more conscious of that since I came home, uh, even though quote unquote I don't have to be. And so reading this was, um, yeah. I mean, I'll I'll uh, go along and say that I I have also liked everything he's written. I like the Doubt Factory for what it is. It's not high art. This is high art. This is. I'm not usually a big fan of message fiction, and and you know, uh, you know, let's let's except for Star Trek, I guess. But one thing I love about his work is that uh, it does stick with me, and it's just a really, really well written and well plotted story every time out. It's um, it's what you said. I, I mean, I think that one of the things that even in Star Trek you could say is that you need to have a good story, a good plot that goes along with your message, and yeah. that that could you could say that was the sugar coating sometimes. And what what Bacigalupi is doing here is you know he's telling he's telling uh, an action adventure story in this world where he which allows him to tell us about um, let's imagine uh, a Southwest with these crippling water um, deficiencies and what the politics would be and what the social ramifications would be. That's uh, but, you know, then I'm going to tell a story about this guy and, and, and these two women and what happens with them. And, and there's, you know, and there's action there is, and there's adventure and there's excitement and there's some crazy sci-fi kind of things in there. But, um, you know, but that's, it's, you know, it, it, it is, I think, well done in the sense that, that, uh, the, the, I, the message isn't, it, it is the plot, but it isn't the plot. It's more than that. If it was just a message, if it was just a screed about the environment, I think it wouldn't be, uh, it wouldn't be as successful as it is. Not to tip my hand for later, but I really, I really like the, the close look. I don't, I don't necessarily like the, the, let's see the entire you know, everything that's going on everywhere all over the world. Hard, hard to get a that's, lot of perspective when yeah. you're looking at it from that viewpoint. And and you don't need it. And this this is proof that you don't need mm-hmm. all of that to have an effective story and to and to get your points across, to get the message that you're trying to sell. Um, you can you can just do it really nicely. 
Scott McNulty's in Philadelphia. He's just pouring buckets of water onto the street for fun. I'm doing that right he's, now. He's I have a, a hose set up, and I just turn on the faucets and throw it out the window. Yeah. Uh, this book okay. has reaffirmed that I should stay on the East Coast because we do have plentiful water. <laughs> there's usually uh, rain in Oregon. There's, a, in fact, a scene where they call Vancouver, and they're like, it's raining? Yeah. What is that? Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, Vancouver that said, has its own problems mm. in earthquake land. Yes, well, that's true. See, we, we, we also don't have earthquakes over here in the, the East Coast, generally. Right. Uh, of course, we'll have one, and then everyone will die. But um, Yeah, but you Philly sports fans, I'm really not that, sure that's a trade-off. That hurricane, that hurricane only missed you by a little bit, so, you know. We do have hurricanes. We sometimes have too much water. That is a the problem. The hurricane mm. learned to not mess with us. Also, right. Eagles fans, I feel like we can't Again, talk about that danger enough. Lex Friedman, take note. <laughs> oh, that's so, true. so, Scott, what did you think of uh, the water knife? I liked it. Uh, I uh, read it very quickly, so that's always a good sign. Uh, yeah. I enjoyed the fact that it was shorter than Seven Eves, uh, mm. to, to compare and contrast the two. Uh, although it's not surprising, considering both authors. Uh, I liked, yeah. all, talking about comparing and contrasting, I liked the, how real the water knife felt and plausible, and how there was so many striking scenes of completely different people experiencing the same kind of uh, horrific ecological breakdown in so many like the people who live in these arcologies it doesn't really matter because they have a fountain and a river and everything's lovely inside their little self-contained world but then you go outside and there are people lining up at a public spigot that they have to pay you know money to get their water and the prices fluctuate based on the market yeah there's a scene where it mal- malfunctions and it van- it overvins water and like one of the characters feels like she struck it rich because she's going to be able to resell this water for right a or lot she of figures money. out that because it's based on the market so there's at one point oh, yeah, it, which, goes, yeah, it yeah, goes down it goes to down. nothing and so yeah, you can she, quickly she fills up uh, a lots of uh, jugs, and of course, right. in in this book, that is a great boon for her. But immediately it turns into a horrible thing mm-hmm. uh, because nobody could be happy. <laughs> well, have you ever seen The Wire? It's pretty much like watching the kids in season four of The Wire yep. attempt to get out of their terrible situation. Yeah, and yeah. It's, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's yeah, it it's was very just, sad. No, the the what I enjoyed is I really like what he did to Lucy over the course of the book. That's our our reporter. Yeah, Lucy's the reporter character, and um, there's a character who appears very briefly and kind of kickstarts things off where he tells Lucy that her problem is she thinks too small. Mm-hmm. And um, at the end of the book, when she gets what is essentially the Maltese Falcon of the book, the thing everybody has been looking for, right. the thing everybody has been willing to kill and to die for, and she gets it, and she's like, with this, Phoenix can, you know, control its own destiny. And, like, she, she's all, I'm going to make sure that Phoenix is empowered by this. And she says this in front of somebody who has lost parts of her body, her parent, and her best friend to the way Phoenix is now. And I thought, oh, my God, Lucy, you really do. like. And I thought, it's not Lucy thinking small. In that case, she was thinking too big that she missed the key details, which is that there are probably people in Phoenix who, who don't want it to succeed, who, who want yeah. desperately to get out of there and will do anything to get out of there. And Lucy lost sight of that. She was She was chasing after the power structures, and she kind of... It was okay to document the desperation, but I don't think she really realized the lengths people would go to to avoid prolonging the pain. You mentioned the MacGuffin here, and I, it may seem ridiculous to uh, people that 
essentially what they're talking about and this thing that everybody's uh, fighting and, and dying over is a document about water rights from, uh, the from a long time ago and like who had the first water rights to various watersheds and rivers. And that may seem ridiculous. Like, well, really, when you've got all these states and their national guards and they're fighting each other and they're blowing up pumping stations and things like that, what is uh, some quaint old document going to mean? Except if you look at the headlines of the mandatory water cuts in California right now, um, they're actually the age of the water claims is the determining factor in whether your farms get water or not. So this is absolutely real. As ridiculous as it sounds, I think it is that ridiculous. And yet it is also accurate. So I, I thought that was a nice touch. That, yeah. that, that was I, fascinating yeah. to me. There have been reporters who have been documenting the Colorado for like the last 15 to 20 years and taking a look at who has claims where because this is a very real thing. If you were to cut off the, Cal- the Colorado's water supply well above Arizona, Utah, and Nevada, they'd be hosed. And so right now, who can draw water from Cal- from the Colorado is a really fraught political process. And when Arizona started doing large-scale spinach farming, they actually tapped into the Colorado to do that. And that set off a whole political flurry. Um, it's uh, Mike Davis wrote a book called City of Courts, which is about um, Los Angeles and how, you know, it, the reason it grew is because they stole a lot of water rights, which, you know, you can learn more about actually when you watch Chinatown. And um, they talk about how water is life or death to the American Southwest. And there are a lot of people who have a lot at stake in making sure that it flows in ways that are deeply unnatural for the region. And I, 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 I loved in this book how he had clearly done his homework on how the battles are fought, you know, bit by bit with ranchers and with farmers and, and where the money flows and, and how it gets started. It's just such a well-researched book. <laughs> also, we talk about um, about this being apocalyptic. It is in a way, but this is a small apocalypse in the sense that it's an apocalypse of a region. And in fact, um, one of the things that he goes to some pains to show is that this is a world of haves and have-nots. And people in the United States, and this is something I think Paolo Bacigalupi does a lot and does very well, is is uh, make you understand how people in other parts of the world and other situations feel by turning the tables on on Americans and display and showing them in that position because you have that this is what it, you know this is what they go imagine what it would this be like if you did this yeah. exactly so in this case what we see is not only do we see the rain in Vancouver and we hear about you know things in, in back east and all of that but lurking the whole time and we very rarely see any instance of it other than like people referencing it is the monster in the room which is California and the implication that California will always get what it wants it's got the people it's got the power it will suck you dry if it wants to and everybody in this story is scrabbling around on the edges trying not to anger california and trying to get enough to survive without drawing you know california's eye and i found that fascinating too that this isn't this isn't uh you know a story about the the um you know how california steals everybody's water when there's a drought this is a story of all the people whose water got stolen (laughs) and how they survive which i think is a really nice touch so california is like this super scary it's like the soviet union in a a spy story (laughs) in in said in the cold war where it's like it's just it's out there yeah are they are are you you know the Callies are going to come and then it's all the jig is up man it's over then right um I, i think that's a fascinating little touch too 
And it's it's funny you brought up Chinatown because the first thing I wanted to do as soon as I finished was go watch Chinatown because <laughs> it's been you know fifteen years since I saw it, twenty years since I saw it. I was thinking too because you talk about you, Jason. You alluded to the gap between the rich and the poor, and one of the things I like about the way. Um, Mr. B. I'm just going to call him that. <laughs> One of the things I like about the way Mr. B writes is he makes it abundantly clear that the technology and the gee whiz advances like the arcologies have all been um, developed and designed in the service of the, the for of the elite economy. And it right. reminds me a lot of the stuff that you see in William Gibson novels. Mm-hmm. Except here, there's more of an angry activist heart, whereas in William Gibson novels, like he can go off for a paragraph about somebody's super fantastic flannel shirt and the fountain pen they're using. And then there's like a woman doing jujitsu. But here instead, it's... Well, it's a little you know, less it's, fetishized, and it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely more commented the wealth, on. The wealth is a lot less fetishized, and you are aware of the human cost, um, yeah. you know, especially when you've got these... These these dudes who are supposed to be looking for aquifers, not finding them, they're going, oh, well, hookers on the company tab and, and, and working that way. So it's I like his books because I like the angry beating heart of them. Well, they feel real. Yeah, they don't they don't feel like again, they don't feel like some fantasy world where we're so far removed. It's like, oh, that's nice. Post <laughs> Like Mad Max feels like a fantasy world. Yeah. Where it's just right. like it's so far removed from reality that you're like, all right, this is supposed to pop. Right. How would bang. how would we get mm-hmm. to that point where it's yes. very clear how we would get to this point? Wait, mm-hmm. So did everybody had everybody read um, the Tamarisk Hunter, which is one of his short stories in Pump Six? I have. Yeah, I have yeah. not. Uh, yeah, that's a good collection. So, that's a good short story I, collection. Pump, Pump Six is an excellent. Pump Six and other stories is an excellent collection. Um, all all um, ecosystem and climate change related, uh-huh. I believe. But the the Tamarisk Hunter is, I believe, the short story that kind of spurred this this book into action, which follows basically a a so called Tamarisk Hunter who basically goes down the Colorado striking down tamarisk weeds that are sucking the water dry. Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. And and his interactions and his uh, his view uh, or how he sees people basically being policed on the on the Colorado. And that that in itself was such an interesting snapshot of a potential life. And then I forget a year or two later in the L.A. Times, there was something very, very similarly mentioning, um, you know, tamarisks sucking down Colorado, et cetera. And it was just I don't know. I feel like he has such a good he has such a good uh tap on the sort of the beating heart of like what what is vital in certain areas and the like the ability to just draw out what might be most narratively interesting without not necessarily saying like this is the future everything is doomed but if this is the worst way that this future could go let's dive in deep and look at these three people and explode their lives basically let's make all of the bad things happen and see how humanity reacts which is fascinating so I will say another way that this book reminds me of William Gibson is that after I read it, I thought I really love the world and I really love the writing. And as for the plot, it is not anything special. Like to me, I felt like like Gibson and I love Gibson, but Gibson's Mm -hmm. plots are pulp crime plots mostly. And this, you know, 
but it's, they have such nice stuff. Oh well, my God, that's, their stuff that, is so amazing. That's exactly it. And, 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 and what about with Bacigalupi, um, I've never really felt that way before, but with this book, I felt that way. I felt like the setting was so rich, but like in the wind up girl, the setting is, is rich, but it's also bizarre. And in, and drowned cities, I think the setting is, is rich and it's also super weird. Um, in some ways, water knife, I felt like the setting was good. And then the plot is kind of, it is a MacGuffin plot. It is a thug, uh, you know, and some mysterious, like people get assassinated and the, there's a, the reporter who's on the trail and there's the 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 poor refugee who's put in these terrible situations and it's not bad but it did i just wanted to say it, it, that struck me and i think that's the reason that i didn't like it as much as some of his other work is not because of all the things we've been talking about but because i felt like the story itself when i got done with it was like that part of it yeah you know it felt like i've seen that story that's like a uh you know it came off of the plot machine um See, I, am, I almost like it that way, I, like I, I almost enjoy the fact that it is basically an archetypal story um, shoved into these extraordinary circumstances because it illum- for me at least what I really enjoyed about the water knife were the the small moments in there and the 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 very real humanization of these characters. Whereas the their overall arcs may have been fairly predictable, but the brief like the individual scenes and the way that these characters interacted were very very interesting. Um, I don't, yeah, I, yeah. It, it's the, it's about the little moments for me in this book, which I, I, I mean, but you're, you're, you're totally valid in that. Yes. It's, it's much more of an archetypal story than his other works. Yeah. I mean, to, to me, it, it's sort of like that lets you focus on the message and the character moments. I mean, it's the same thing with Chinatown where he wanted to tell the story about the water rights and he came up with this whole noir storyline to fit it into. And so that was sort of the spoonful of sugar for everyone to get the story of the water right. thing. And I think that's, I think that was, I almost want to say it's a very intentional thing here. I, I think that might've been in his, his brain going, Hey, you know, I could take that and put it into a science fiction setting with these thriller elements, but <laughs> he actually go. calls it out. He calls it out. Cause they talk about all of the stuff that Lucy reported on and got Pulitzer's well, yeah. for. And they point out that her most, her most dogged tenacious reporting that puts all this together was her least trafficked work. Like yeah. that's yeah. like they make yeah. that com- it's like he makes that commentary on the state of journalism with what gets eyeballs versus what gets what should get attention when when they talk about the most respectable and the best work that Lucy did was was unraveling who was responsible for drying out Phoenix and nobody saw those stories so it's like the subtext is text in at least one chapter. There's one other thing I wanted to mention here which is just a funny thing that happened um, a week or two ago Elon Musk. Uh, made the the comment about how if there's an apocalypse of some sort, there's mm-hmm. no place you want to be other than a Tesla because in the Tesla there's like super air filters and stuff like that, and that made me laugh because because there there is a there are several chapters here where where Angel Velasquez is is uh is driving around in a Tesla and he's got the he goes through a dust storm and he's got the filters on and all of that and you know the the, the, the I think it's a nice touch because it 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 says it says futuristic while also saying not that far in the future because it's a Tesla, it's recognizable, and that's kind of funny. Uh, but then Elon Musk comes out and says basically, yep, you want to, you know, if there's something bad in the air, just get in your Tesla. It's really good for that, which is like, again, <laughs> great. I don't have one of those. Consider um, <laughs> your audience, Elon. Consider your audience. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, Scott, you have anything more to say? You've been, you've been characteristically quiet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't want to disappoint my fans by actually talking. So, uh, I have to, 
remain <laughs> as quiet as possible. Uh, well, I thought the the book was fairly straightforward. I enjoyed it. I didn't think it was high art, as David said, but I thought it was a fine novel. I wouldn't read it again because I don't reread things, but uh, <laughs> I certainly would read another book by Paolo Bacigalupe, but apparently not The Doubt Factor. Don't do that one. No. <laughs> I, I, I would say it's kind of in between being... Um, it's not a polemic um and it, it, it's not like super high art either it's somewhere it, it's it, it's in between it is it is it's got a message and it's got a fun story and it welds them together fairly well um i didn't react to it like i did when i read the wind-up girl which was wow this is amazing i'm gonna vote for this for the hugo award for best novel which i did and it tied for that so it won thanks to me i pointed this out paulo Bacigalupi, give me a call. Um, <laughs> my vote yes. that made the difference. Anyway, if you had to re- read only one Paolo Bacigalupi book, I think The Wind Up Girl is the clear choice. I think, but, unless uh, you're a teenager, in which case it is a uh, 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 shipbreaker. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Less yeah. depressing than The Drowned Cities. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, and it comes first chronologically in that because yeah. that's sure. All right. Anything more about The Water Knife before we move on to Seven Eves? Everybody should read it. All right. Read it. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. It's hard, it's hard not to in, think about Syrian in, in refugees when you sad read it way. too. But yeah, it is. Well, also true. Again, this is the this is the thing in Drowned Cities that he does uh, mm-hmm. that he does again here is there is nothing that makes a stronger point for the plight of other people in the world who are in terrible situations than reading a story where you are the people who are in mm-hmm. that situation. He yeah. does that very well, and he it's very affecting. The crisis. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so we'll move on to Seven Eves by Neil Stevenson. It's a this very similar book. This podcast will be 800 minutes long and in tribute to the length of this book. Uh, Seven Eves is longer in, than The Water Knife in that it's 880 pages long, which for Neil Stevenson is a moderately long book. It's a novella. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, and as with many long Neil Stevenson books, there's a, a really great 400-page novel in here. That is correct. Mm-hmm. So I remember Dave Dave Barry once Dave Barry once joked about Tom Clancy that that it was basically like you know four hundred pages of submarine porn and you know fifty pages of actual of actual story. <laughs> and I have to admit that a lot of this book felt that way to me too. Where yeah. I thought, well, if I'm ever trapped aboard a space station and I need to learn how to dock a module in such a way so as I don't blow us out of orbit. I am now fully equipped to do so. <laughs> Hopefully it'll be like that space station. So, uh, yeah. Lisa, I agree with you and we'll come back to that. But first, I, I will at least say what Seven Eves is. Seven Eves is a, a novel in which a, a mysterious agent that is never really described blows up the moon and the moon slowly is coming apart. And they and scientists realize that this isn't just like, oh, it's a bummer. I like the moon. It was it was pretty in the sky that the moon, <laughs> that the moon debris is going to fall uh, at, similar to other apocalypse books that we've read perhaps the last policeman is down there while this is all going on um (laughs) in in a year or two basically there's going to be what's called the white sky which is when all the debris is going to basically uh re-enter or enter earth's orbit and and the earth is going to uh, catch on fire and it's going to be uninhabitable for hundreds of years and uh it's the story of the people on uh, the International Space Station and its successor modules and how they try to figure out how to survive and keep the human race alive even when the Earth is going to be boiled. And uh, that is the premise of Seven Eves. It spends most of its time in uh, in outer space. Um, however, and we'll get to this, there is, th- there is a, a, a 
a point at which the book shifts. And then (laughs) I, I, I've described this to several people as being a trilogy in one book because Mm -hmm. it's kind of like that. There's kind of the, what happens before humanity is boiled. There's the, we're working in space after the earth is boiled in order to try to keep everything together. And then there's the third part, which again, we'll get to. So that's seven eves. It is widescreen. There's a lot going on. And to Lisa's point to just come to that. Yes. Neil Stevenson is a very good writer and he's very good at making his digressions interesting, which every time he would get me and I'd be like five pages and I'd be like, damn it, Neil Stevenson, you made this interesting. How did you do that? Because this has (laughs) nothing to do with anything. And why am I reading? this you're just showing your work (laughs) but well here's the thing but then in this book and i i'd say more than in other books of his there were times where i felt like he was literally just putting things in because he had done the work and those were painful (laughs) where it was like you know i i you know either he did himself or he hired somebody to do the orbital mechanics or to come up with the how the (laughs) rocket needs to fire in order to go in this orbit out of the lagrange point we got a lot about lagrange points and get to the (laughs) comet that we need to bring back and all of that and that was um you know those are the bad kind of digressions i guess (laughs) You know, what's really funny to me is that I actually found the digressions in this book far less annoying than Reemdi, his previous novel. Um, although I think well, I honestly well do you fi- do you find orbital orbital mechanics more interesting than the mechanics of guns? Yes, which I I'm going to say go. that my Pick interest in space probably biases me to be like yep. I do, I know nothing about orbital mechanics and I do not have mm-hmm. the math to make have orbital mechanics make sense. But the digressions, although again towards the third part, got a little crazy. Um, in the first two parts, I actually didn't mind it because it was very much like, yeah, I want to know how we're going to solve this problem, this impossible problem that is impossible to solve. Yeah, I want to know about the crazy lottery process for sending people up from every country and going to visit some obscure, I forget what, uh, I think, Asian country that they go and visit. Is it? Bhutan. Uh, yeah, Bhutan. Oh, yeah. Um, when, yeah, well, they're picking the, 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 ritual. the, the yeah, tributes the, for the Hunger yeah. Games. I mean, <laughs> yeah. for the training. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I volunteer. Yeah. But no, um, in, this is two very good halves and then a third part. Uh, <laughs> that, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Two very good halves. Of the, the, I don't that think your math checks out. That's the whole book, then. Again. Yeah. Well, so, so, said book, she didn't have the math to do uh, so book, <laughs> so well, book no, one and two my, of the trilogy is what you're saying. Is the first I, two yeah, books of the trilogy well, are good, I, and then so there's book three. Honestly, I don't see it as a trilogy. I see it as one really long book and then a weird epilogue a, that just goes on for a, a weird <laughs> novel-length epilogue. Yeah. It's not even novel. It's novella. It's just weird. It's like the ending of AI when the robots come back down to Earth and tell David that he revived AI for a day. Yeah. And it's annoying. Yeah. No, but... So so what we're talking about, and again, if if you don't want to be spoiled, don't listen to this podcast. Oh, oh, yes. oh my God, what are you doing? Um, <laughs> I haven't read all 880 pages yet. What is going... As I'm, as I'm reading Seven Eves, um, I'm thinking to myself, there is no way that Neil Stevenson is not going to be able to write 5,000 years later. <laughs> There's no way. You've set up this thing where they're going to have to wait 5,000 years in order to find out. If there's anybody left alive on Earth, no writer is going to set that up and not be able to pull the trigger and paying it off. So I was well prepared for that moment. And then there it was. And I'm like, yep. And then we enter <laughs> the the final 
phase of the book, which is a wholly different set of characters, but descended from the characters we know. And they have crazy adventures on a (laughs) gradually repopulating Earth with its own showing the research of like, how do we get the ring to be there in the city is going to move. And let me explain how that works. Many thoughts about that part of the book. Uh (laughs) That is the part of the last third that I liked. All of the crazy giant machines. What annoyed me, and this is a spoiler, is that, uh, people actually survived on the earth and it crazily it's the people that were on the earth before that were talking to the people on space that survived <laughs> what, oh my god wasn't that completely telegraphed for the whole book i mean yes. it was so it was, it was pretty like, telegraphed i am in a submarine we are going deeper i can't tell you anymore it's a secret shh but we are going deeper and then meanwhile it's like selfies. we are going in caves <laughs> we will close the door in the caves look for us later and then do they meet the 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 uh, descendants of the cave people and of the submarine people yep yes of course (laughs) okay so you know what you know what it's it's crazy escapist science fiction and i don't you know whatever my the the biggest tragedy for me and again mega spoiler is that our cave friends are theoretically descended from um dinah a character in the story her father who we have been basically introduced to and in fact one of the most most emotional parts at least for me of the book is yeah the 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 morse Morse code when they're when they're just saying when they're saying yeah qrt qrt oh my god i was i was tearing up on that but because she's sending little morse code messages to her father from the space station as the the earth is slowly exploding into flames Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly and that was such a wonderful moment and they build up rufus to be this wonderful human like very human essence of like old world humanity um, and then 5,000 years later, yeah, his descendants are all of the worst of old world humanity and assholes and probably rape their children and, you know, do horrible things to their young women and name people after the encyclopedia. It was just it, – it felt so – like such a betrayal of that – of that character and that family relationship and what I had pictured of that family relationship for the first thousand pages of the book that I <laughs> that I almost stopped reading at that point because I was just like, no, this is you know what? I don't care that you're going to bring the bring descendants back. Fine, whatever. It's the it's fantasy. But to to ruin that character, I don't know. It felt like it felt like ruining that that arc. It felt like, mm. no, sorry, if you go into a cave, the bad people win the end. Although he did try to explain or mansplain, depending on your perspective, <laughs> he did try to explain it away by saying, listen, when you're in a cave with really limited resources, you have to become fanatical about reproduction. And the only way to do that is to establish a totalitarian regime and treat people's fertility like a commun- like a communal resource. And I thought to myself, that is one way of doing it. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, like, like Serenity, I thought it's disappointing that humanity on the ground... Se- on the ground, find you, seemed to devolve to to this 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 stark patriarchal tribalism where it was hit first, mm-hmm. ask questions later. Um, I found myself wishing that perhaps instead of like touching down in Alaska and oh, quel coincidence, um, Dinah's descendants. Like it would have been interesting to see if some other miners in other parts of the world that are famous for their mining industries would have had the same idea, and then you would have been dealing with people who didn't have that cultural and genetic connection. Um, because a lot, what I thought, so I really dislike a lot of part three for a lot of reasons. But one of the things I thought was fascinating was how they had basically made a religion of the seven eves by yes. ceaselessly looping the footage in public yes. places and re-indoctrinating people constantly by having them see 
Stevenson seems to labor under the sweet delusion that if people only have all the facts, they'll act reasonably and come to some sort of cultural accord. And this delusion is like on full on display in part three with, oh, since everybody can just watch the footage, we can remove all ambiguity and everybody comes to some sort of common cultural canon as to how these people behaved with each other. And um, I, I thought it was really interesting how facts, ha- how, how the worship of factual narrative has become a, a religious uh a religious belief system for for these people 5,000 years hence. You know what I find really interesting there, actually, is that I think Stevenson is even playing on that a little bit because we get a whole, we get a whole bunch between Dinah and Ivy uh, very early on in the book, basically one, two of the people on the space station who become two of the seven eaves. Um, th- we get a whole thing back and forth between them about basically being on. And have it, you know, there's a there's a difference between being on and being ourselves. And there's a difference than when the cameras are on and when the station cameras are rolling and when we can just talk, real talk. And I, lo- I love the idea, like, I, maybe, maybe it was completely out of his head by the time that this was written. But to me, it feels very <laughs> much like someone picking up, um, you know, <laughs> The Bachelor uh, Lost Paradise or something and being like, this is our religion. These are our descendants. We must <laughs> listen to every single word they say and find some meaning. <laughs> I would absolutely read the science fiction novel based on that premise. <laughs> I would absolutely. It would be read- hilarious. <laughs> I would, I would read that book oh i would quit my job to read that book wow no that sounds phenomenal i want to read it now um no it's there are a lot of sly touches in there there's a lot in the book there were a lot of little things that i liked and kind of wanted to take to social media about like i thought it was both savage and hilarious when um he when when the journalist who gets up there introduces the idea of quote-unquote soft cannibalism because to me that seems like exactly the kind of idea that gets peddled in vc meetings at startups (laughs) then i thought wow that's a really vicious commentary on the whole chatterati chattering classes thing and and the way that poor blogger's life ended was i thought oh that's that is somebody settling some scores (laughs) i mean riveting to read don't get me wrong but um like i said the big problem i had with part three was uh, you have the existence of the 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 deep diving species the pingers that's right and um Part of me was like, wait a minute, are you, how would, how would a bunch of people in a submarine have radically altered the human genome to the point they would have had to over 5,000 years to produce what is essentially a race of, of, of man seals? Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, oh God, that's yeah, the, like the that's science the weird. Is, yeah. Like the science, like I, I realize, mind you that, you know, we're, we're, the science is a workout is a weird thing to snark about in, um, in this. And especially since genetic engineering does play a huge um, part with the, the the races that have descended from the seven eaves but i was like you know i don't feel like this was as well researched or or as carefully thought out as again all of the stuff that has to do with the space nerdery like the space nerdery uh, that is that is stuff where you could probably get a boatload of nasa people in the room together they'd be like oh story checks out um but when it came to the genetic engineering um there's almost no explanation for for any of it and that kind of bugged oh. because I thought, all right, you're talking about fundamentally altering a human genome and you're talking about a very small group of, 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 of raw material to begin with. And like, I, I can't make it work in my head. I can't suspend disbelief for it. I think the, one of the problems with this book is that it's um, 
I'm not convinced that any of its science is anything but ridiculous, which makes it all <laughs> a lot harder to sit through the downloads. The fa- the idea that mm. we're going to take kind of a retrofitted International Space Station and just put a bunch of stuff up there and people are totally going to figure out how to survive in space without any uh, contact with Earth for 5,000 years. Um, no, that's not going to work. It's not going to work. And and he didn't prove to me anything that would suggest that it do- it would work. <laughs> it It's sort of like well. can- lots of waving of the hands like no 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 we're resourceful we'll figure it out it's like no i don't think anything you provided here would really legitimately work and then the fact that that by the time you get to the midpoint of the book um almost everybody has died already i kind of love that actually like that's the part that feels very realistic (laughs) sure horrible but then everybody dies and it's the end they send elon Elon musk into space to get an iceberg and he comes back having died from rectal bleeding Um, yeah that's a little i thought that was kind of cool when the elon musk analog uh goes (laughs) to a comet and uh brings it back uh, we're gonna lasso a comet yeah Yeah. Yeah. poor neil degrasse tyson gets the space cancer Um, yeah everybody gets the space cancer except for except for the carly fiorina um stand-in and she just gets a bolt through the tongue so um and there is no. a neil degrasse tyson analog yeah in here the, uh, so, so here's a can I, can, all right so this is the thing that has been bugging me about this book ever since i read it and can i talk it out with you like no. they have they have the summit they, they have the summit of the seven eves the the seven women who are literally the, the the last of the human race out in space one of them is patently insane Yes. One of and and one of them is just an evil woman who is who 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 let's face it basically precipitated the crisis that they find themselves in now thanks to her like breaking the crater like accord and causing a cosmic incident and then causing the insurrection that causes them to lose all of their germplasm blah 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 why on earth would you let these two reproduce like why didn't anyone like just whip out the space gun at that point and go right you're out boom boom okay we got five of us here let's run the numbers like i just do not get the point why do you not kill yeah. off ada and julia when you get the chance what is the point to keeping them around because well, then you wouldn't have a palindrome you, well that's true but mm-hmm. also there were what there were eight there was one person who was too old to Louisa, be yeah. one of yeah. these right so that means they think they're the last eight humans in the universe uh and even if two of them are not so great uh that's that's a quarter of the human race right that you're just gonna kill <laughs> yeah. i don't know and, you're improving the species well yeah and that's i mean that's the fatalistic way of looking at it and mm-hmm. i do think i do think there's a very valid point there especially when we do flash five thousand years later it's like oh yeah these guys still have this. Um, and, but and that would have been a more interesting a, twist. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Well, of course, it's an it's a race it's a race bred of ag- aggressors and cannibals. What yeah. do you expect? Like, I am all for nature over or nurture over nature and all of that. But yeah, I the only way I can rationalize it is Scott's thing, where it's like these like these women, as crazy as they are, have been through so much together that there was just. There's a at this point a line in the sun, and I mean Dinah's pretty much ready to blow everybody up at the end anyway, and just be like, yeah. "I, we don't, we don't deserve it." <laughs> yeah, and that would have been an interesting thing if if, but then what that does is is five thousand years later, like the people come out of their cave in Alaska, I'm like, crap, nobody has bothered prepping the atmosphere for the last two thousand years. We're all still hosed. Yeah, <laughs> we'll go back inside and yeah. memorize the encyclopedia some more. Oh, I love sonar tax law. So her tax law is adorable. (laughs) Even if she's probably been raped by the creepy mole men. Yeah, but now she's found true love. With she um, has. yeah, yeah with and the, has and, with and has a convenient um, deep knowledge of many subjects between Mm -hmm. S and T. 
Yeah, between sonar and tax law. That's her. Yeah, no, it was um, interesting how they balanced out the devolution from a written culture to an oral culture too. I thought I thought that part was. I was like, okay, maybe maybe Neil Stephenson's talked to a communication scholar because there there are significant cognitive differences and language differences between oral cultures and um, written cultures and how you transmit and pass information down. He got that right. Part of my beef, and I've just put this in the Twitter chatter, is um, Sherry S. Tepper wrote this fantastic book uh, back in 1996 called Gibbon's Decline and Fall, which um, science, and as with a lot of her books, reproductive freedom is one of the predominant plot threads that go through it. And at the end, um, the protagonist is handed six different colored vials and said, okay, you can figure out how to guarantee the reproduction of the species. One, it's business as usual. Two, it's parthenogenesis. Three, and and the idea is that she has to pick the future of the species. And I I couldn't stop thinking about that scene in that book during the the summit of the seven eaves plus Louisa, because I thought, wow, this this was done a lot better by um, Sherry Tepper, 20 years earlier. <laughs> so, and, and that was, and that's actually points to another problem I have with the whole, um, oh, and here's how we managed to do 5,000 years of culture in our little space structures. And we now have what amounts to the US and Soviet relations and so on and so forth is um, John Varley, who we have discussed in earlier apocalypse type um, book clubs. Back in the 70s, John Varley wrote a novel called The Ophiuchi Hotline. Um, and the premise was that a bunch of aliens watched how humans were treating other species and said, okay, right, we're on the dolphins and the whale side here, and then managed to uh, neutralize all human technology to attempt to cleanse the earth of humans. And the only people who could, um, the, only, the only people who survived were people on a space station, and um, they colonized, they colonized um, the moon. And then Varley has a whole host of short stories and a couple more novels about lunar society and lunar culture and they are fantastically thought out from a sociological perspective and it culminates in the novel steel beach which talks about the depression that people have when you are raised in an environment that you simply haven't evolved to and i thought well you know if they've already got the genetic engineering going on with the races at the seven eves why don't they talk a little bit more explicitly about what it would take to evolve us to the, to evolve human beings to the point where they're totally okay living in a world that that literally does not ping any of the Paleolithic buff buttons we had installed. Like there were a few allusions here and there with um, Kath too and how she was suffering from sensory overload when she was gliding around and stuff like that. But again, it felt like this question either didn't interest him enough to answer or like he didn't even think about it. And I just kept thinking, wow, Varley did this better and Varley did this earlier. And that's not a good sign when you're reading an absorbing 900 page epic and you're like, oh. Read it, read it, read it, seen it done, seen it done. It's been done better here, you know? Scott, you suggested that you um, you liked the uh, end part. So I'm a big fan of space opera. And so this is, you know, when they're t- he's talking about these giant space rings. And I like reading about the, the hardware, uh, so which is why I like military science fiction, because a lot of time is spent lavished on hardware, right? Uh, There's a lot of that. There's, so there's a lot of that in the third part. There's a lot of it in the first and second part, but that's more, you know, like current technology, uh, plus a lot of chain physics, which I didn't find all that mm. fascinating. But <laughs> I think Neil Stevenson really finds it interesting. Clearly, uh, he does. <laughs> so, but I thought I liked the 
the first part the most, I think, when they're, you know, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson was trying to figure out <laughs> what what it means that the moon has exploded and he figures it right. out and he's horrified. That's, that's and your disaster story, right? That's your mm-hmm. classic disaster story por- portion of this book. Yes, I thought that was the best part. If I, if I, now I'm going to rank the parts. I agree. I the first part was <laughs> the best part. Uh, the second part yes. was the second best part. And the third part wow. was the third best part. I, I, the, third, the third part was maybe the fifth or sixth best part, really. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I liked, I liked the third part. Um, but I think Ren's comments about it are right on, which is I think it's actually more problematic when you're thinking about the direction that's pointed from the first two parts and thinking about mm-hmm. the the families of these various people. I thought it was interesting. I thought it went on too long and had way too much detail on how the various objects that have been built around the earth work. But that's, oh, again, I feel like, I like everything that. you do, if you read Neil Stevenson, he is just going to show his man. work he is going to yeah. show his work in a lot of ways that you don't yeah he doesn't even do a grocery store list without going into like a two-page digression on the mechanics of refrigeration and how grocery stores yeah. came to be because it's an yeah. interesting story <laughs> and i like that in general uh and i also i like he he so the chain thing i thought was annoying but he did thread it through the whole every part had a part with the chain and you know they had weapons that were were based on that chain thing and part of the whole giant megastructure was part of chain so he, he put it through uh which i appreciated i did still think it was annoying but i appreciated the work he did <laughs> yeah. to put it in there that that's why i usually avoid neil stevenson cuz at his best i find him to be a slog so I didn't think this was him at his best. No. And, I mean, just, just contrasting the two books, The Water Knife I read in about 72 hours, and this took me about two and a half weeks. Yeah. Of, well, it is of 80 not, times longer than The Water it Knife. It is 80 so. times but, <laughs> yeah. but actually sitting down and saying, I have to keep reading this because I'm going to talk about it, mm-hmm. whereas the other one was like, I want to find out what happens. And, you know, again, it was, it was you know, been there, done that, read that, seen that. Uh, you know, and, and I kept coming back to uh, Julian May. If you want to see someone who can handle, like, oh, families across thousands and thousands dynasty? of years. Are you talking yeah. about the Remillard dynasty? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, those books are amazing. Yeah. yeah. That's that's good stuff. <laughs> so this was sort of like, oh, you came up with a palindrome. Good mm. job. I, I, well, I, and I think you're right. There is a really good novel hidden inside here. It is The mm. Last Policeman. Oh, <laughs> I enjoyed this book and I read a couple of interviews with Stevenson and he his goal. And I think that he has a group of science fiction authors that he's buddy buddy with who all think that uh, people have lost sight of trying to do big challenges and do big science. So mm-hmm. this was kind of his clarion call to have big ideas. So he wrote this big epic sweeping mm-hmm. thing, uh, which I think talks speaks a little bit to the fact that he kind of the people don't really matter because they're banding together to solve this giant problem and it's not about individuals and i I understand you i agree with you lisa in that stories are of course the most interesting when you have a character that you kind of feel uh invested in and can humanize but i don't think i think it was a conscious decision on his point part not to do that uh whether or not that makes it good or bad i won't say yeah i read some interviews where he said the same thing where he's all yeah i wanted to bring back this commitment to ideas and that science fiction can inspire people to do big ideas. And I thought to myself, yeah, characters are important. And he, you know, people can unite around an idea. And I thought, yeah, but you know what that was called? That was called the Martian where everyone, you know, where everyone united around the idea of bringing home this dude stranded on Mars. Uh, So maybe, 
maybe it is possible to advocate for big ideas while remembering that ideas are only successful when you can figure out how to how to how to put humanity into the picture because they're the ones executing the ideas. If yeah. you there's pretend- only one character in The Martian, though. But yeah. <laughs> you can you can uh, the potatoes. You can you can write 900 words that's that are full of ideas, but you have to have a a story that makes people want to rally around those ideas. And I think that's one of the places where Stevenson often struggles is that that that's when he is. I'm going to show you how I did all this work. And again, I think he's so talented that he can often pull it, pull it off. But I, I think that I think it's a challenge. And in, in this case, um, I, you know, I read it. I read it all. I read it relatively quickly. <laughs> um, these are ben, all things going to go on the back page. Yeah. These uh, are things I, I read it all. <laughs> I, I mean, I didn't. I, I didn't give up on it, and in fact, I read it snow. fairly quickly. So we passed two yeah. of the tests. But that all said, I I found myself kind of squinting and being like. Really, Neil Stevenson, way more than I usually do in his books, and so that for me, I have to say, I was kind of disappointed. Even though there's a lot of great, there's a lot of great stuff in this book. It's just a really big book, yeah. and there's a lot of not great stuff in it too. Mm-hmm. It needed a very good editor, which it did. No. And there's a guy named Doob. I just I can't get past Doob as a. I name. wonder if Neil deGrasse Tyson was like a total stoner as a as a college thing. And this is like an inside joke. I can't because I was like, "What? Well, that's a Neil deGrasse Tyson person." And and then oh, that's Elon Musk. And then when you get to uh, Julia, I was I was going through like, okay, it's not Sarah Palin, but <laughs> I don't know. It's uh, yeah. I don't know. It, it, he's a he's a frustrating and, and fascinating writer, and and yeah. and it it pulled me along. I love I love this stuff. I mean, Lisa, we've talked about it how many times, and with many of the people who are on this episode about end of the world stories and and yeah. and how they can be really interesting and, and and attracting. I just you know a lot of the stuff I didn't I didn't. I didn't buy it. Like I loved the space stuff on on the idea of going to the comet and they end up dying of horrible like radiation poisoning and all of that is really an interesting story, but then there's a lot of stuff that I just couldn't believe like, you know, this isn't we aren't going to if he's really saying, "Hey, here's my big idea. We need to be able to survive in a rickety space station when the earth gets destroyed." I don't think he I don't think he um convinced me that that's no. even remotely didn't possible. Think that one out. Yeah, you know, this this is struggle this is hard for me because this is a book that opens with one of the best opening lines that i've seen in recent years Mm -hmm. the moon blew up suddenly and without warning is the kind of sentence that just grabs you and especially the the first couple of chapters uh although i have to say listening to them in audiobook format um the second time around when i was listening with someone else like this is actually a lot more uh dense than I remembered the opening being. I remembered being like, moon blew up suddenly without warning, a little bit with Dinah, and then the, let's have a star party and look at the pieces of the moon. Oh, crap, we've been focusing on the wrong thing. Yeah. And it's just, like, there are there's these really wonderful moments in the in within this book that sort of slice out uh, just what I think the core of the story is, is these, you know, these seven or eight people um, that we follow throughout the throughout the book and their their ho- their own individual challenges, but surrounding those uh, sur- surrounding those little bubble habitats are infinite areas of space, and by space I mean random descriptions about things that again were play for me at least were I was so hooked by the opening couple of chapters, and then there's just bits here and there that would every time I would get a little bit weary of it it would just snag me again like the we've been thinking about the wrong thing and the you know qrt and like little little bits here and there um that kept me on the the overall train 
But looking at it in retrospective and especially going back from my sort of fast-paced reading to listen through it with a friend on a car ride, I was – it made me realize that the book wasn't quite as uh, – I don't want to say great because I didn't think necessarily the book was great, but I thought it had really fascinating elements. And I, th- I think going back to it and looking at it again, it it becomes more hollow where you're like, yeah, you have these wonderful – you have these wonderful moments and then you tear them down. And then you spend 30 pages talking about rockets, which are still interesting, but – A really good editor – could have paired this into a really good novel. I I, I agree with you. Mm-hmm. But um, it seems like once people become established novelists, they they unless they really really trust and want to work with an editor, they don't get edited anymore. And we talked about that on this show many times. Who is before. the best selling author? Not you. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so 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 I'm gonna. All my words are golden. I don't know what you're talking about. People love me, and that's why I, they love my thousand page books, and that's yeah. why I write the thousand page books. And nobody stopped to say this would be a stronger book. Or if they did, they were told you don't say that to him. <laughs> You're being reassigned. He has a sword. And I apologize to the editor if it, this was originally 1,200 pages. <laughs> it was actually 4,000 pages. I really wish an editor had been like, really, they're going to let Julia live after she violates everything that this project stands for? Like, why didn't they just have um, Russian athlete whose name I'm blanking on? Like, they could have had her just shove Julia out an airlock again. And, like, a lot of problems could have been delayed. And I really wish an editor would have said, you know... This doesn't bear up logically speaking. Um, yeah. Or uh, Neil, Neil, we're, we'll let you. Um, it's going to be an 800 page book, but the last 200 pages is going to be footnotes that and and, and appendices. But, um, you know, we're not going to let's not put them in the actual manuscript. I don't know. It's it's he's a, he's a, such a talented writer. And I worry a little bit that he's kind of um, he's kind of lost his way now where he's going to get to do what he wants and people are going to go along because he's so well known and he is t- so talented. Um, and this is two in a row that have been problematic for me. Um, and, and although I like the first again, I like the first whatever it is, half of Reemdee before it becomes a uh, a. a sort of like action uh, movie out in the woods, uh, which was fine for what it was, but was not what we come to expect from him. But, you know, it makes me want to go back and I would say reread the Baroque cycle, but I don't have that kind of time, but like go back and read, reread like Cryptonomicon, Cryptonomicon or, yeah. or even Anathem, frankly. Yeah. So. yeah. Cause I was, I was thinking about Cryptonomicon in contrast to this, cause there's a very funny passage in Cryptonomicon about how one of the characters, vengeful ex-girlfriends writes an academic paper on beards as a status symbol in IT. And, um, and I, and Stevenson is very, very funny when he's skewering the culture around, um, science and engineering and I appreciated it there and I saw what he was trying to do with it here but it's it's so bloated you really had to dig through a lot of it and there were a lot of times when it wasn't just suspending disbelief it was like okay I, I really have to just accept that this is going to happen <laughs> they're they're inexplicably going to let Julia live they're inexplicably going to let all of the storage units that have all of the ova and sperm drift away with a bunch of demented youngsters and Julia, they are going to do a fine, you know, it just like getting up in space was not the problem. I really wish he had taken a time to talk to some of those, those hated and feared non-hard science types who are, you know, say sociologists and um, other people who study, uh, 
like communities that work in close quarters and stressful situations. Like it would have been helpful if he had talked to somebody who's in, for God's sakes, they featured a, a submarine. Like they could have dropped some submarine science with, well, you know, the Navy studied how these groups work together in these tight, close quarters which could kill them. Here's what maybe we should consider doing. Like there was literally nothing about the social human engineering in this. And I think when you're talking about the fate of the human race, you kind of have to bring that up. Uh, I did. Uh, one thing that I, I am disappointed that he didn't since he re, re, uh, sort of made good on all other threads. I, I am sorry that at the end he doesn't say, Oh, didn't we tell you there are also people on Mars because people go to Mars. Some of the, the rebels say we're going to go to Mars and all the other unaccounted for survivors of earth established societies that were flourishing 5,000 years later, but they don't even mention like, Oh, you know, they, they all died or, Oh no, miraculously like everyone else, they survived, but there's maybe, and now they've turned the into sequel. people who no word about red. the Martians. Yeah. No. That's the sequel. Just the pingers. He doesn't write sequels. They're submarine stuff. people. Uh. Yeah, Stevenson's on the record saying that he doesn't ever believe in sequels. No, he gets the whole story out if it takes him 3,000 pages. (laughs) He gets it out. He will do it. His sequels are just extra long epilogues. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, any other thoughts about uh, about uh, what the heck is this book called? I can't even remember. Seven Eves. Seven I'll say Seven it backwards. Eves. Seven Eves. Anybody no, no. have any any? Yeah, uh, more actually, thoughts? I do. Of course, I, uh, yeah. You, I, Lisa, you have more thoughts. I do. It's a, it's I, a whole second novella of thoughts. It's great. yeah. It's it's eight hundred pages of thoughts. Um, <laughs> oh my god. No, um, I said this before Serenity popped on, where I said I really admired the bookend quality that Serenity had discerned when she put these two books together. Because with Seven Eves, you have this it's space opera, it's grand in scale and scope. And it's fundamentally this super optimistic book about how science will solve all your problems and humanity will, you know, rise to the challenge. And oh, things will be wonderful. And in the future, they'll be, you know, hanging out in cool bars, you drinking grapes farmed by Neanderthals and we and then the flip side of it is this incredibly intimate story in The Water Knife, where it looks at how, no, uh, science and technology only solve problems for people whose problems extend to, how can I have a nicer fountain in my arcology that nobody else can get into? Um, <laughs> or how can my air filter work better as I rip through the the sandstorm, um, getting ready to put the hurt on someone my boss wants me to? It's It was two very, there were two oppositional ways of looking at the at the end of the world for somebody. And I liked how um, the differences in scope and the differences in the way that the two chose to look at the human condition and how that affects the outcome of, of, a, of a society's future. They could not have been more different. And I think that reading them back to back like I did for this podcast really highlighted that for me. So, you know, Seven Eves, if you read that in context with The Water Knife, it's, it's just like, wow, this is big, big, big in scope. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just keeps going and getting bigger. And I've lost track of who all the characters are <laughs> because I've just read some more about chains filled with robots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Gone from there. So, so many but, robots, yeah. so many chains. Yeah. No, I, th- I thought it was I thought it was I thought it was um helpful to look at it in contrast with a, a v- very intimate end of the world book, which is what the water knife is in a lot of ways. Mm. Yeah. Coming at the same idea from two very different points of view. Exactly. Go, go read Julian May. Just <laughs> read Julian May. Oh, quick. Would you recommend the Pleiocene saga or would you just go straight into the, um, straight into the stuff that starts with Jack the bodiless? Um, I would, I would start with the Pleiocene saga. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I, would, I first read them all in order, just mm. in, in in publishing order. So mm-hmm. all right, we have we have uh, come to the point on the show where I very quickly want to go around uh, and uh, ask my panelists 
if there's anything interesting that they're reading or have just read other than the books we've already talked about. This is what we like to call, what are you reading? David Lore, what are you reading? Well, I'm back in writing mode, so I'm reading nonfiction again. And I'm reading The Monopolists, Obsession, Fury, and the Scandal Behind the World's Favorite Board Game by Mary Pallone. It's about uh, the game of it's life, a- right? Yeah, yeah, and Scrabble and, and Trivial Pursuit. Okay, good. It's, it's yeah. Good. That's as it should be. Uh, and yes, you have script, you, you owe me some scripts, so keep yes, on reading yes. that nonfiction. <laughs> uh, Lisa, what are you reading? Oh, um, I'm reading two things at once. I'm reading Citizen Coke, The Making of Coca-Cola Capitalism by Bartow J. Elmore. And um, I finally got my copy of Randall Monroe's What If? Serious Scientific Answers. Yeah, to, uh, to absurd hypothetical questions. Very nice. So those are the two that I'm, I'm reading concurrent. I, I usually have like two or three books going at a time, and I just kind of flip through them depending on what I'm in the mood for. All right, that's, that's good. Uh, Serenity, what are you reading? I am working my way through Alan Bradley's Flavia de Luce series, which is this uh, young adult uh, post-World War II story about a young girl in Britain who uh, who loves making poisons. <laughs> uh, and it's and she solves murder mysteries. Ah, sure. While doing it, it's very it's very clever writing. Yes. It's very mm. clever writing. It's it's delightful English countryside. It's a nice mashup. And then I'm also reading uh, the real All Americans, uh, which is I just started reading it about uh, basically about the early days of football and the teams who basically cheated or cheated and the reverse cheating that gave college football all of its uh, all of its rules and regulations because <laughs> as 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 somebody who participates in a sport that is only 10 years old and has a lot of rule negotiating happening live on the track it is fascinating to uh, to see that from a from another from a sport that's now pretty storied in its very early days hmm. and scott what are you reading or have read that is uh, worthy uh, oh, I've read two novels uh, right after I read Seven Eves and Water Knife, uh, both of which I thought were better than Seven Eves oh. or The Water Knife. Uh, <laughs> one of which is by an author that Jason has sworn off forever, so I'm sure he will never read it, uh, unless it's nominated for a Hugo, which I think it will be. Uh, and that's Aurora by Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, which is... I've heard good things about it, but uh, yeah, I'm, reluct- <laughs> I'm reluctant to go back there. <laughs> well, I think it's, I don't want to ruin it because it has uh, some fascinating twists to it but i thought it was fantastic uh i'm a fan of kim robley uh kim yeah say his name if you're a fan uh ksr that's what the real fans call that's right uh so i think it's great it has it's uh, basically it follows this generation ship that's going off to uh colonize a world and some things happen and uh you know, it's interesting. Uh, and there is another book that I really like by Ian McDonald, who's one of my favorite authors, uh-huh. uh, wrote The Dervish House, uh, which we talked about on a previous Hugo um, episode. Mm-hmm. He has, for the last couple of years, been writing young adult fiction, which angers me because I don't like young adult fiction because I am an <laughs> old adult. Yep. And so, uh, but he's come back to uh, normal adult fiction and he's written a book called Luna New Moon, which is set on the moon. Uh, and someone has called it uh, the Game of Thrones on the moon, which I don't think is really accurate, but uh, it involves five families that are fighting uh, on the moon uh, several hundred years 
figures in in the future, uh, and it has many nice little touches. The the characters uh, apparently in the Moon culture, nineteen uh, fifties style has been a resurgence. So people print out fifties dresses and things and go to cocktail parties. Uh, everybody has uh, these. Uh, contact lenses that are implanted in their eyes and they get to see how much air they're being charged for and if you run out of money you suffocate and die because you know someone has to pay for the air mm. uh, they call people who come from the earth to go to the moon uh, they call them Joe Moonbeams because they're new and they can't figure out how to do stuff uh, it's just a great book uh, so check it out all right and for me, I've, I read The End of All Things by John Scalzi, which is the latest in his Old Man's War series. Um, and I I feel like he needs, I, I, and I believe he is taking a little uh, step away from the series because I feel like it was kind of wheezing to the finish line. It's got some familiar characters, but uh, I think he got caught up in the kind of interstellar machinations at a high level of and, and had this plot line that went through the, these last two books about this secret attack on the, on the human race. And... Uh, I don't think it really merited two books worth of story. And I think these series are really, the books in this series have been the best when they focused on, uh, on those individual characters and how they make their way in this crazy, uh, you know, space opera world that he's set up. And for the last couple, we've had a lot of bureaucrats and a lot of negotiations and a lot of ambassadors and it's fine. He's a good writer. It's entertaining. It's always kind of breezy and fun. And yet I feel like, at the end of it, I just sort of said, yeah, okay, whatever. I honestly, I don't even remember how it ends because it was so insubstantial and, and I just moved on to the, to the next thing. Um, and then I wanted to put a shout out to Aftermath by Chuck Wendig, which is the uh, Star Wars novel that's got like one star, a million one star reviews on Amazon because it doesn't uh, answer all of the questions that fans have or service fans in the way that they expected. And all I have to say is I thought it was fine. Um, I don't think it, I don't think it's bad. I don't think it's fantastic, but I think honestly, it's, uh, pretty good for a, a, uh, a movie franchise tie in novel. And, uh, the people who are angry about it are not angry about it because of the content. They're angry for personal reasons that <laughs> don't relate to the actual book. So, you know, that's Nerd rage. Yeah. It's strong. And I, I understand why they might be angry, but it's, it's not because of the book. It's because what the book doesn't do, which is tell the story that they have imagined for 20 years in their own <laughs> minds. This uh, is what happens when you reboot uh, when you reboot a franchise and when you destroy years of con- former continuity. Of, of which, the expanded universe continuity and all that yeah. stuff. Oh, it's totally understandable from that perspective. I just having read the book, I can say I thought it was fine. I didn't, again, not great literature or anything, but I thought it had some interesting characters. It played with the Star Wars universe in the, in the way you might expect a, a novelist who gets a chance to play in the Star Wars universe to do so. Um, it, you know, it was, it was fine. It was a, it was a quick read. <laughs> and, and there's nothing wrong with being fine. Uh, and you read it all. And I read it all to <laughs> that's, the end. That's, that's another great quote. Yeah. It was fine. It was fine. I, I read, read it, it all. Quickly. What more do you want from me, people? <laughs> <laughs> I'm only one man. Put that on your book, unless you're KSR. Oh, take that. <laughs> well, uh, this has been fun. I know uh, we're going to have to figure out what we're going to read next. Uh, maybe it will be things that Scott recommends that from authors I don't want to read. Uh, but that's okay. I, Scott, Scott's uh, introduced me to some fantastic books. So perhaps we will have to go go have Scott assign us something. Uh, he is wise. It's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. 
And it is. You, you hate to recommend something to somebody and have them say, oh, I hated that. You know, that's the worst. That's true. Um, so I'd like to thank my, my fellow members of the book club for joining us tonight. Lisa Schmeiser, thank you so much for being here. I had a ball. Thank you. Uh, Serenity Caldwell, thank you. It was a pleasure. I'm glad we all have water. I'm glad we have water for now. <laughs> some more than others. Uh-huh. Yeah. David Lohr, thank you. Thank you. I, I'm going to go get some water right now. Yeah, okay. I might not. Uh, <laughs> the price is just too, too high. So, so the, the water knife cut a little close for you? Oh, uncomfortable. And, oh. and uh, Scott McNulty, of course. I, it wouldn't be book club without you, except for those times when you refuse to be on. That's right. When someone has recommended a book, I will not read. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But that didn't happen this time. No, I read so, both of them. So thank you for them. being here and reading the books. Well, thank you, uh, Ren, for suggesting them. Yes. Yes, full credit to Ren for saying, we should we should do a book club about this. And so we did, and this is it, and you just heard it. Uh, and until <laughs> next week, I have been your host, Jason Snell. Thank you for listening to The Incomparable. Goodbye. Listen to it all. You got to the end. <laughs> Incomparable Reader said, I heard the end part where they said I got to the end. <laughs> it was a crisp autumn evening in the Windy City, even though it was only the middle of June. As usual, I was in the loop down at Falstaff's. My guy was blowing the sacks. The bartender came by to refresh my drink. What do you think, doll? They're playing some new stuff tonight. Not so's you'd notice, Johnny. Yeah, yeah, says you. You get to hear it all the time. All I know is I'm digging what they're planting. That doesn't quite work, Johnny. Eh, worth a shot. Just then, a woman blew into the club like an ill wind. Or maybe a client. Probably both, knowing how these things go. Can I help you, miss? I'm looking for a doll tear sheet, private eye investigator. Down the bar, the one with all the red hair, bee stung lips, you can't miss it. Are you doll tear sheet? That's what it says on the office door. Does it also say private eye? Because I'm being framed for murder. And that's how I got caught up in the DeBanche murder case. It's the Incomparable Radio Theater. New episodes through December. Are you not subscribed yet? Go to theincomparable.com slash radio. Subscribe now. That's an order. 